So that's Don Draper. Even if you never saw Mad Men, I decided to put four different scenes together to kind of introduce him to you. Turn to the person next to you. Whatever campus you're at, Ames or Ankeny, Johnston Grimes or Waukee, Des Moines or here in West Des Moines, turn to the person next to you and say, the dude's got some issues. Go ahead and just say that. We're going to put that right out there. He's got some ego and some pride and some arrogance. He's great. And if you aren't sure about that, just ask him. He'll tell you how great he is. The reporter in that last part of that scene from the Wall Street Journal says, so here's this firm, you're one of the four partners, your name's on the wall, but just one of four names. Are you the man? Are you the reason this company is so great? Well, yes, I am. Yes, I am, he says. He tells Peggy, his brilliant, talented co-worker who's on her way up and has all these creative ideas that she basically owes her life and her, all of her success to him and to Jesus, kind of puts himself on the same level. That when you walk in and wake up every morning, you should thank me and Jesus for who you are and all the opportunities you have. This is Don Draper, who is wildly successful in this series. His character is. He's uh, um, advertising executives from Madison Avenue in Manhattan. That's why the Madison Avenue, MAD, Madison Avenue men, the MAD men, the advertising men of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. That's the seven-year arc of this Emmy award-winning TV show that ran for seven years, 13 or 14 episodes a season, and I watched them all again this last week. Oh my goodness, I'm so full of madmen right now in my head. But the reason I did that is because I think it serves as a wonderful metaphor and illustration and backdrop for the last story in the book of Genesis. There's a lot of Don Draper in Joseph. Joseph also had some issues. Joseph was the guy with the amazing Technicolor dream coat that his dad gave him, the special colorful robe that none of his other brothers got. In fact, it says in the Bible, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 37. I'll wait. No, I'm just kidding. It was a little fun. But bring a Bible uh, to church so you can make sure we aren't <laughs> making this up as we go along. And also because it's good for you to be in the Word or get out your Bible apps if you don't have a Bible, we've got free Bibles for you. We'd be happy to get you one. Chapter 37 of Genesis, verse, starting in verse 3. Jacob loved Joseph. Jacob's the father. Joseph is his son. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. Rule of thumb, do not favor one child over another. Pretty sure I said the exact same thing last week, but that's because history is repeating itself. The sins of the fathers are being passed on to the next generation. You'd think Jacob would know this because he grew up in a family system that was so dysfunctional because his mom favored him and his dad favored his twin brother Esau and it led to all sorts of chaos. But he repeats the same mistake. He buys a special colorful technicolor robe that becomes a Broadway musical uh, that, that, that sweeps the country uh, many centuries later, buys his son a special robe and the other 11 sons don't get one. That's just a horrible way to parent. And it causes all sorts of problems, but it's not all on Jacob. It's on Joseph too, because Joseph, much like Don Draper, is filled with pride and ego and arrogance. If you don't believe me, skip ahead to verse five. One night Joseph had a dream and he told his brothers about his dream. And he says, hey brothers, come here. Here comes my dream. Listen to this dream. Verse seven, we were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Got it? Okay. We're out in the field, all of us together, all the brothers and me. We're out, we're tying up bundles of grain. 
Suddenly in my dream, my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed down low before my bundle. Isn't that a great dream? What do you think of my dream, brothers? We hate your dream, is what they said. Joseph doesn't learn his lesson like Don Draper. He still continues with this arrogance. And just a few moments, few days later, he says, I had another dream. Only this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, he has 11 brothers. He has a sister, Dinah, too, but she's in the kitchen with someone else. He, sorry. <laughs> Strumming on the old banjo. But in this dream, the sun, the moon, the parents, mom and dad, and the stars, the 11 brothers, stars, all bowed down and worshiped me. What do you think of my dream? We hate your dream. And we hate you, and we're going to kill you for it. This story, if you stick with it just another few moments, you realize how relevant it is for our daily lives. Because maybe not in such a blatant way, but on other levels, we struggle with the same kinds of sin, the same kind of stuff that takes life away from us. We're in this series called Genesis, a binge-worthy Bible series. We're wrapping it up today. We've been through the whole book of Genesis from creation now to the end of the story using these binge-worthy TV shows as our backdrop. Emmy Award winners, uh, critically acclaimed, popular kinds of things that people binge on these days. Because we wanted you to realize that these stories are really nothing new. And more importantly, we wanted you to apply this great biblical teaching to your daily life. And there's no better place to do that than right here in Genesis. It happens to us every day, sometimes in kind of silly, subtle ways. Is it just me or have you noticed when you go to your local hardware store, the snowblowers keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger all the time? I'm thinking this is going to be my next one right here. <laughs> but the Bible says kind of check yourself on this sort of thing, not just snowblowers. But don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Ooh. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. So we finally get some big snow for the first time in a few years. It's, it's awesome if you have a big snowblower because then you can go out and do the whole neighborhood. And it's just easy, you just kind of take a little stroll with your snowblower and it's just shooting the snow all over the place and you're feeling alive. And the, the, the weather is crisp and cold and it, and it goes right into your heart and your soul and your lungs and you just feel alive. It's the one, and, and then you, you kick it up a notch and you put it all the way up and you, and, and you bring the, the, the snow thrower part at the angle where it shoots practically straight up. So you can make a fountain of success for all the neighbors to see. Look at the power of my machine. Only then the neighbor comes home with something even bigger. <laughs> Silly stuff, right? But we kind of play these games, don't we? The Bible says, all who fear the Lord will hate evil, and therefore the wisdom of God is, I hate pride and I hate arrogance. I hate it not just because it's bad. I hate it because it's bad for you, God says. It's actually taking life away from you. And on the other side of pride and arrogance is often envy and jealousy. And that's what happens. So it's the pride and the arrogance of someone like Don Draper, and it's the envy and the jealousy of all of his competitors in the advertising world, or even some of his coworkers, or his loved ones, his family and friends. 
In the story in Genesis, it's the pride and the arrogance and the ego of Joseph. And on the flip side of that same coin, it's the envy and the jealousy of his 11 brothers who envy, want what he has, and jealousy don't want to lose what they thought they used to have in their family, their status that now Joseph is taking. These are stealth sins. Envy especially, jealousy, its cousin, are stealth sins because they sort of blend into the background of daily life in our culture. They certainly do in modern culture, in America today. They blend in and we kind of, it becomes so commonplace, we hardly even recognize it anymore. It's stealth. But it's a life taker. It's an absolute life taker. Envy is the sin that keeps on taking. It keeps on taking life away from us. And that's why it's so deadly. That's why it's so destructive. It comes along and, and distracts us from love. It steals our joy. It, it robs us of peace. It takes away the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, and peace, by destroying it. It's a soul crusher. It's like this little boy who's happy with his treat until he sees his sister's ice cream. <laughs> Wherever there is jealousy, the Bible says, let's read this together. Whatever campus you're at right now, if you can see the screen. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. It's not the jealousy or the envy or the ambition that's really the problem, it's what it leads to. It's the disorder and it's the evil of every kind and we, you know, we pretty it up and we just say, well, it's just passion or it's just drive. Yeah, but it's taking life away from you and from other people when it, when it runs amok, when, it, when, when we don't keep it in check, when we don't put boundaries around it. Drive and desire can be a very positive and wonderful thing until it becomes too big of a thing. Or on the other side, with our envy and jealousy, we can, we can see somebody who's super talented, like Don Draper in Mad Men, or like Joseph. His brothers could see. See, it's not that Joseph was prideful and arrogant about something he didn't have. He did have it. The Bible says he had a special gift from God. He was able to, to see the future, visions, dreams, interpret those things. He was a great leader. Uh, he, he was a great organizer. All of that will come very clear as we read through the 14 last chapters of the book of Genesis. Joseph is a hyper-gifted dude, kind of like a Super Bowl where the halftime show has a guy who's, well, he bought his clothes in the hunting section at Target, but he's really, really talented. This is Justin Timberlake, and I found it fascinating last week. I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of him, but I, I don't dislike him either. I'm just kind of neutral about his music. It's not my particular favorite, but I appreciate the guy's talent. But it's fascinating to me. So the, so the halftime show. How many of you saw the halftime show last week? I want to get everybody, pretty much. So we see the halftime show, and in this Twitter world, in this social media-driven world, somehow we feel compelled to criticize and, and, and tear down. And, and if we didn't like something, let's destroy the guy. Which is exactly what happened after the halftime show. Justin Timberlake came out and, oh, offense of all offenses to our modern uh, pristine culture. He sang songs that he's written. What a shock. And he danced the way he always dances. And he gave what was basically a wholesome show. He even took a selfie with a junior high kid with braces at the end. <laughs> and then... The world went nuts, absolutely destroyed this man. 
crushed him. It took, took, took shots left and right. Like, at a certain point, don't you think the level of criticism starts to reveal an emptiness in our souls? Starts to show a whole lot more about the insecurities in the critics than it does the talent of the performers? At a certain point, doesn't it say more about us when we have to sit back with our cynicism and our critical spirits and feel the need to go out? This is a human being with a heart and a soul who's going to be crushed when he reads these things. I get it. He's a public celebrity, and he's probably used to it on a certain level. But ask the major league umpire who's sitting right over there. When he gets booed, he feels it. He understands it. It's real. What's happened to our culture? Where did our manners go? What happened to what mom taught all of us? If you can't say something nice, don't say it with me. Don't say anything at all. Where did that go? Where did that go? Where we feel that we've been given the authority to destroy people just because they're out there in the public sphere. What does that say not so much about Justin Timberlake? What does it say about us? What does that say about our need to criticize? Maybe we feel like he has more talent than we do on certain levels, so we have to tear him back down to our level in order to feel good about ourselves. Or we look at Tom Brady and we say, what a loser! Five Super Bowl ring loser who threw for 500 plus yards last week in the game, but oh, what a loser! He totally choked! He's Tom Brady! And he's a better quarterback than you. (laughs) And your son. At a certain point, at a certain point, this reveals too much. It shows too much about us and what's missing in us that we kind of go after people and send missiles at people and try to destroy people. That's just on the public sphere. In our interpersonal relationships, behind the scenes, it's bullying at school. And it's grown-ups, too, and at work, and you gang up because maybe she's got something that we don't have, so we're going to destroy her. Or maybe she doesn't wear clothes the way we do, or talk the way we do, or, or, or have her hair the way we do, or, or, or she, she's a little quirky, or she, she's got a different kind of outlook on life, or, or she has a different worldview, so we're going to go after her because we're so insecure. At a certain point, it says more about the critics than it does the one who's being criticized. And that point is pretty early along the path of envy and jealousy that leads us to a place where life is actually being taken away from us, not just the people we're trying to hurt and destroy and tear down. When Joseph's brothers got so mad at Joseph for telling him his arrogant dreams, and they were arrogant and pride-filled and sinful in that way, But instead of responding by shaking it off and brushing it off and forgiving and reconciling and have grace and just saying, well, that's Joseph, you know, he's our brother and he's got some issues, but we love him anyway. They plotted to kill him. They said, here comes the dreamer. And the next part of this verse is, let's kill him. Martin Luther in the 16th century, the guy who started the whole Protestant Reformation and the one we take our name after is Lutheran Church of Hope, said that it's killing people not just by taking their life physically, but we can kill people with our words. We can destroy them. We can crush their reputations, their their character, their identity. 
And a lot of that is at play in this story between Joseph and his brothers. Let's kill him. Let's, let's, let's beat him up, leave him for dead, put him in a cistern. Reuben finally talks his other brothers into not killing him actually themselves, but leave him in a cistern because Reuben was going to come back and try to save his life. But it all fell apart. They ended up selling him into slavery to some people who were on their way down to Egypt. So Joseph gets taken into Egypt, starts living as a slave, eventually he gets arrested, gets thrown into prison, don't have time to get into the whole saucy story of Potiphar's wife, but if you have questions about that, ask your campus pastor after the service, it's really, really fun. Or come to page two here where I'll be teaching on that on Tuesday night at 6.30 if you're at this campus. But the story accelerates through and suddenly Joseph is in Egypt in prison having lived as a slave. His life has completely fallen apart, but he's Joseph. He's a man who's been blessed by God, like Don Draper, who's had all these falls, all these drops. The opening uh, introduction to the Mad Men series shows this cartoon feature-like vision of Don Draper falling, 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 even though his career is rising. It's fascinating. The Bible said this about Joseph. Can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? I mean, Don is good, right? Successful, rich, worked his way up, pulled himself up by his bootstraps, uh, clearly a fashion, fashionable kind of good-looking guy, right? He's Don Draper. And he's full of pride and ego and arrogance, which shows his own insecurities and sin, and he's surrounded by people of envy and jealousy, which sows their own insecurity and sin. But he's done. And like Joseph, he starts to pull himself up. And he's able to walk into a room and sell a 30-second commercial to people that they didn't even know they wanted. <laughs> I do. Jesus has a better way for Don Draper. He's got a better way for Joseph. He's got a better way for you. He's got a better way for me. He's got a better way for this world. A way out of our pride and our arrogance and our ego, a way out of the flip side of that same sinful stealth coin that's a life taker, our jealousy and our envy toward those who have gifts and talents that we wish we had, and things and possessions and stuff. And we start to find something else. Don Draper was kind of lost in the camouflage of thinking that there's more to life, that he could find it in being successful and rising to the top of Madison Avenue, and he did. It got to the point where, like Joseph, he was in charge of the entire land of Egypt, which is a big deal. Egypt was the most powerful country on the face of the earth in Joseph's day. Pharaoh was the most powerful leader, and Pharaoh made Joseph his right-hand man, his number two. Joseph had it all. He'd achieved it, but still something was missing. Still something was missing. In this story, which ultimately really is not a very G-rated story, it shows all the darkness and the consequences of this sin of pride and envy and arrogance and ego, just like Mad Men does. Cannot recommend that you watch that show with your family. Really well written, really well produced, has some great clips that we can use in a sermon, but it also shows the darkness. And in that sense, maybe it's not necessarily a terrible thing, but it shows the darkness of living a life of, of alcohol abuse and smoking cigarettes constantly throughout the day and treating women in misogynistic ways like pieces of property in the office instead of as sisters in Christ. It shows where that leads. It shows what happens when you make your family second to your work, to your career. Because even though Don, like Joseph at the end of Genesis, has risen to the top of the world, 
And the whole world around him was, man, if we could only be Don, if we could only be Joseph, if we could only have the kind of position in life that he has, well, then we would have arrived, that we will have arrived, that then we'd be full. But you hear that constantly here because it's a constant theme in the Bible. And it's a huge temptation for our culture to think the way you can have a full life is to somehow keep chasing after more. Fascinating to me to watch the Olympics. We were watching the opening ceremonies Friday night, and I know they happened Friday morning, our time, uh, because of the time change in, in South Korea. But I don't know what it is about this year's Winter Olympics, it, but I just wasn't that into it until Friday night. Now I'm all in again. I'm like I always am when it comes to the Olympics. I'll go home and I'll probably check to see what happened today too. Last night when Red did that whole skip, wow, USA, USA. Yeah, we can cheer for USA. That's great. But four people are into the Olympics. That's good. See, it's a different world. But that's a whole other sermon for another day. Here's the thing that hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm watching the opening ceremonies. I've got my laptop open. I'm, I'm finishing the last part of this sermon. And then something happened that made me close the computer and stop and watch. This athlete from North Korea joined this athlete from South Korea and they held the torch together and they ran up the mountain to light it for the whole world to see. A light shining in the darkness, which is a wonderful biblical metaphor for hope. Uh, I get it. I'm not naive about world events. I know it might be totally staged and part of a, some manipulation scheme from North Korea, this country that said we want to annihilate South Korea, we want to wipe out the United States, we want to drop bombs everywhere where people don't line up with us. I, I get it. There's a tyrant leading that country, and it might be part of his whole plot. But I also wonder if that is his plot and he's trying to manipulate the world by doing this, if it isn't going to turn against him, because there are a lot of North Koreans from those I've talked to who've been there who think unification at some point is inevitable. We'll be back together again. It's just corrupt governments that keep us apart. We'll be back together again someday because they love each other, because they see each other as one. And so when something like this happens and the North Korean cheerleaders start cheering and the South Korea cheers, here's South Korea. They have to feel really blessed. They're hosting the Olympics, so the whole world's going to look at them for a couple of weeks. But that's not enough. Their real hope comes from moments like this, from the chance to go home again, from the chance to connect again. From the chance to have something that their hearts long for that's more than just being a gold medal success story and being the host city of the Olympics. There's more to life. There's always more if we just peel back a layer or two for us too. Helmut Thielicke, the great theologian of the 20th century, said for a lot of Americans we ought to engrave on their tombstones brilliant performance but you missed the whole point. You did all these things. You made it to the top of Madison Avenue. You were a success in this way or that way or whatever. But you missed the whole point that life at its richest is about relationships. It's about the relationship that you either have or don't have with your God and the relationships and the quality or lack thereof that you have with people in the world around you. That's it. Everything else, as important as it is and as wonderful as it can be, is secondary to those primary things. 
The richest people in this world know this. Whether they have tons of money or not, whether they have lofty positions that the whole world admires or not, they know the real wealth in life comes from relationships. The quality of those relationships with the one who made us, with God, and the quality of those relationships that we have with people in the world around us. Here we are just three days away from embarking on the season of Lent, a time of spiritual growth. Lent literally means springtime. Talk about hopeful. (laughs) We are hopeful for better days ahead. And in that spiritual season, traditionally, Christians have used it as an opportunity to grow, to let go and to give up things that are taking life away from us, sin, pride, envy, ego, jealousy, and to take critical spirit And to take on things that are good for us, faith, hope, love, relationships, the things that matter more. In one of the last episodes of the last season of Mad Men, the founder of the company, Burt Cooper, dies. And the office is heartbroken. Burt is a quirky, spiritual guy who doesn't wear shoes in the office because he's kind of like Moses at the burning bush, it's holy. He has advice for everybody. He's a father figure for Don and for a lot of the others who's patiently offering grace and mercy but calling them to a better life, to live for something more than just making the next sale. But there's more to life. When Bert dies, it reminds me of Jesus' teaching in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Don't store up treasures here on earth. In one of the most peculiar moments in this whole award-winning series, and for the only time in seven seasons on any episode of Mad Men, suddenly they go Disney musical for a couple of minutes. Bert is dead. They're having a remembrance, and they're announcing his death upstairs to the whole office, and they're going to be crushed. And Don, because Bert is his father figure, can't take it emotionally, because he's an empty soul, too. And so instead of grieving in a healthy way, he tells Peggy, one of his coworkers, I, I gotta go. I'm going back to work. Only he goes downstairs and he has a vision. And that's another recurring theme in this series. Like Joseph, in the end of Genesis, Don has visions and dreams that kind of foretell this, the consequence of the chaotic road that he's on. Or sometimes teach him a valuable lesson. Don has made it, he's a total success, the world would say, but his soul is empty, and even though he has tons of money, and he lives in this glorious apartment, he's broke, and he knows it, because he doesn't have relationships that last. He doesn't have loved ones around him. He doesn't have faith or hope or love, and so he gets this vision of his old father figure mentor, the founder of the company, the spiritual dude who doesn't wear shoes because it's holy ground, who suddenly, for the first and only time in the history of this series, sings a Disney-esque song. It's absolutely silly until you realize the lyrics of the song are exactly the sermon that Don needs to hear. And maybe you do too. Bird, as a father figure, had a way of cutting right into the heart of Don, right into the essence of his soul. And that's why he's crushed at the end of that scene. That's why he starts to weep. And he has to sit down on the table, this wild success of a man. 
realizes how empty his life is and how he's done this brilliant performance but missed the whole point. The point is relationships. The point is faith, hope, and love. And Don's been living for the wrong things. Don't store up treasures here on earth, the Bible says. Jesus says, let me show you a better way, but instead store your treasures up in heaven. Don realizes that and struggles with it. We're all a little complicated. We all do, if we're going to be honest. It's not that simple. But when he's given the opportunity to sell a 30-second commercial to Kodak, Kodak's a company that used to exist. They made film and cameras and things back when people took pictures and had them developed. They were kind of a big monopoly. They also had this thing called a slide projector. A slide projector is this thing they had with a wheel on it. You put pictures in it and you put a big screen in the living room and then as a kid you'd know that was your cue to get out of the living room. Otherwise it would be three hours of boredom. Grandpa's trip to Italy, you know, something like that. But one of the great things about this series is it kind of parallels what was happening culturally at the time. So Don's selling their advertising to Kodak, and he's teaching them that this is more than just a new technology, the iPhone X of their day, it was, and then some. But it was, well, it was a time machine that connected people to the good, healthy side of nostalgia. The unhealthy side of nostalgia is when we live in the past so much, we never break free of it. And we aren't living in the moment or even with an eye toward the future. But the healthy side of nostalgia is it reminds us of what's most important in life. Nostalgia literally means in the Greek, a pain from an old wound. But there's a second definition to nostalgia. In the original literal definition of the original Greek, it means going home. Going home. Home isn't a place. Home is people. Home is a relationship with God. Home is faith, hope, and love. It could be anywhere. It doesn't mean you go back to the address you grew up in, the house, the actual physical place. Home is the people you do life with. Home is the loved ones around you. And you don't, even, you don't have to have family for that, what traditionally is called family. It could be your life group at church. It could be your sisters and brothers in Christ. It is your church. Welcome home. The best things in life are free. Let's close the sermon with a look at what I believe is potentially the greatest scene in the history of television. I mean, it's that good. The point of life is that it goes round and round until we can find our way home to a place where we know we're loved again. <laughs> it's not a place. It's people. It's faith and hope and love. It's your relationship with God and with one another. It's the people you do life together with. That's your family. That's where the riches are. That's where the abundance is. That's where the joy and the peace comes from. That's where the full life is. Don't let your life be a brilliant performance, but you miss the whole point. Live it the better way. This has everything to do with Joseph. In the last chapters of Genesis, Joseph breaks down and he weeps five different times. A few of them he has to get up and leave and go into a room by himself and just wail. 
Because the second most powerful man on planet Earth, Joseph, has an empty soul because he isn't home. It's got nothing to do with going back to Canaan. It has to do with the fact that he isn't doing life together with his loved ones until his brothers finally show up looking for some food. And Joseph is in charge of the food distribution because he's the man. And they don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them and he weeps. And then they get together again and then he sees his father Jacob and he weeps and he puts his head on his shoulder and he just wails because he's finally home again. Not the place, not the address. They're in Egypt and that's where they're going to live now. Setting the table for the next book of the Bible, the Exodus. But the whole point of the story of Joseph stands on its own. Round and round we go in life until we finally find our way home again to a place where we know we're loved. For this world is not our permanent home. We're looking forward to a home yet to come. This is a foretaste, the love that we have in family, the people you do life together with in church, the love you share with one another when you gather together as the body of Christ at every campus. This is what it means to find life at its fullest. Welcome home. Welcome to hope, to faith and to love. Welcome to these places where we find life at its fullest. Don't let your life be a brilliant performance where you miss the whole point. Live your life for the things that matter and are going to last. Learn from Joseph who finally was full only when he found his way home. When he reconciled with his loved ones. Find the life that God wants you to have. Follow Jesus' better way. Don't store up treasures here on earth. You can't take them with you when you go. But your relationships, you'll still have those forever, for eternity. Invest in them, pour into them, live for them, and find the love and the joy and the peace that the Spirit wants to give you right now. I'll turn it over to the campus pastors uh, for the closing here in West Des Moines. Why don't we just stand up and uh, say to the person next to you, I'm really glad you're here. I really am. Welcome home. Say to the person next to you, welcome home. Let's sing the song.